Have legal questions that need answering? Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Emmanuel Shepherd and Condon. Message us with topics you would be interested in hearing on future episodes of Legally Speaking. Hello, everyone. My name is Jack Turhar. I'm an attorney with Emmanuel Shepherd and Condon, and I'm very excited to be here today co-hosting this podcast, uh, an episode of Legally Speaking uh, with my co-host Roderick Sumter. And today we're going to be talking about government contracting. And actually, I'm, I'm very excited because we have a unique opportunity today. Um, so many times I'm dealing with clients on regular construction projects and, you know, typically the owner, the one who, who's, you know, paying for the building being built, they're the one who's making the decisions. And on a government project, that's simply not the case. The end, uh, the end uh, product user, the, the customer, doesn't get to make those decisions, and that's made by a contracting officer. So many of the meetings I go into on these federal projects, we're thinking, hey, you know, what does the contracting officer think? How is he going to get involved? Because they have very broad authority. And today we have the unique opportunity to talk to Roderick. Roderick uh, was a contracting officer on these federal projects. So, Roderick, why don't you uh, just give us a little background, uh, kind of a... What's your... Uh, sure. Um, yep. So uh, 24 years in the military. I just recently retired in November of last year. Um, I've had a myriad of different type of um, MOSs and um, and that's military occupational spe- specialties. The last one I had in the military was an acquisition officer, and I did that for the last six years of my career. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been deployed about eight different times, been about 63 months in total, being deployed. Um, you and I deployed yeah. back in 2018. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, spent nine months in uh, Jordan and Syria, uh, making magic happen down there with all the requirements that was there. So And uh, yeah, so I, that was in South Carolina. And after that, and most of the projects we were doing back then were uh, contracts for the fight against ISIS. A lot of... Uh, right. Yeah. We, we deployed out of South Carolina. Yep. And um, went straight into the fight there. And uh, we uh, were supporting Operation Spartan Shield and Inherent Resolve. Yeah. yeah. Where, where'd you go after that? Oh, um, after that, some uh, PCS permanent change of station to um, Aberdeen Proving Ground, Army Contracting Command in Aberdeen Proving Ground. Mm-hmm. So, Roderick, I, I know uh, for, for people who, who aren't familiar with uh, contracting, some of the certifications that people hold, uh, what, what is DAU? Oh, the Depart- um I'll just help you. Defense Acquisition University. Yeah, Defense, defense Do you hold any certifications University. from from Defense Acquisition University? And what is the Defense Acquisition University? So, um, yes, I, I do hold many uh, certifications from them. Um, the top one is Level 3 Contracting. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the highest level you can go in the contracting field. Um, it really de- depends on, of course, your education and your experience to get to that level. It usually takes four to six years for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, you're saying levels. So, there, so the DAU, that's, that's a school, basically, a defense school that teaches how to be a contracting officer. And I'll tell you, they don't teach you about construction, I'm guessing. Is that right? Or is it? Is it it's, it's in there. It's in there, yeah. Yes, construction contracts, oh, yeah. Um, and so, and there's three levels. And then, what are some of the, the certifications that you can get from DAU? And there's contracting. Um, yeah, re- research and development, uh, you can get those. Um, uh, also, there's... The oversight contracting yeah. Uh, yeah, that you can receive from them. Well, um, yeah. So let's kind of roll into it then. Um, when you're a contracting officer and you're looking for new potential, you, you got an, uh, an award. Uh, first off, I guess, who, who's the customer? What's a requiring activity? So requiring activity is our mission partner, uh, a.k.a. the customer, a.k.a. the warfighter. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so whenever the warfighter needs to complete a mission and has a, um, a delta, a deficiency, uh, they reach out to the contracting, um, the acquisition side, mm-hmm. to, to find a local vendor that can fulfill okay. either the supply needs or an actual uh, service need. Gotcha. So I'm just going to translate a little because you're using some, some, some quick language there, delta. And, but, I mean, basically what you're saying is, you know, if I'm uh, – I could be the Corps of Engineers, I could be, you know, Air Force Training Command, but I need a new building, I need a new classroom, I need, mm-hmm. that's the that's the need. And so I go to you. Mm-hmm. I fill the void. Yeah. yeah, so if you don't have the the actual uh, capabilities mm-hmm. to build a building or um, for any kind of supply needs, uh, computers mm-hmm. or anything like that, um, I fill the void, right. and that's the delta. And, and that's kind of interesting because that means, you know, the, the people who are living in this community who are going to go, they, they know what they want, but they're not the ones doing the purchasing. Oh, no, absolutely no. So what's the process that you would go through to identify a potential vendor? So we get a, a package from the customer, the warfighter, um, and then we have to identify the need. We have to do a determination and justification for that, mm-hmm. um, and that depends on the market research. So okay. we really have to spin ourselves up and become smart on what the, um, the issue is and how to resolve that. And market research is pretty much a collection of data. Uh, we get out there, we beat the streets, we get on the worldwide internet, uh, we do mm-hmm. some postings, and we generally find out, you know, the market conditions, the, mm-hmm. the competition, the pricing. And really, since we are spending the taxpayers' money, we want to make sure we get the most value uh, out, out of that that spend. So, so market research—that's the process. And if I was, if I was somebody who wanted to break into, if I had a product to sell or a service that I thought the government would be interested, that's really the process where I can be identified. That's where I really want to start that dialogue. Um, yes, uh, yes, that's spot on. Yeah. Okay. Well, what what is the system? What what system do you utilize as a contracting officer to start identifying those vendors who are capable? Oh, uh, Sam's. What what is Sam's? Um, system of acqui- uh, acqui- not acquisition, system award management. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and what's uh, and, and so how does someone become involved in that system? How do they go about getting listed? Um, you go to sam.gov and you actually um, initiate a registration um, point of entry, and pretty much you have to register your business. You got to have your EIN number, um, business name, and um, all the. Articles of Confederation for just establishing your business to get it registered. Mm-hmm. And so, and when you're a contracting officer, so you're going to go on there and you're going to, that's where you're going to identify. Is there a way that if I want to, if I want to say, you know, to a potential contracting officer, I know they're going to be looking for this requirement down the road. I mean, is there any type of paperwork or what can I do in my SAMS profile to stand out so, so they can say, you know, this is a vendor who I should potentially. Oh, yeah. So um, everything has like a capabilities report. You put it in there, and uh, you basically tell what the government what you can do, um, how you are categorized with the cage codes and the DUNS number and everything, so that we can search you out easily. You got to put um, keywords in there that that we're looking for, um, and and definitely be registered uh, within the system. Um, and and to be registered means to be you're you're certified um, as a as a government company, mm-hmm. uh, potentially. How long does that process take? Uh, for SAMS, it takes about four to six weeks to, to get into the system. Four to, to six weeks. Yeah, and to, to get a, a user identification number. Yeah. So if I'm even interested in pursuing a contract like this, 
I got to be forecasting this like eight to 10 weeks out realistically because I got to be registered and ready to go. Absolutely. And it's an ongoing thing too. So you can, you can have your SAMs and, and be registered, but your registration can expire. Mm-hmm. And we find a lot of uh, civilian companies, they don't, you know, they don't track it. They get it. They forget about it. Um, they put in for an actual uh, request for quote. And during the process, we're, we're looking at it and they might come as the winner, the winner, but guess what? They're disqualified because of their um, SAMs being outdated. Yes. Um, I've heard a lot about GSA. What is what is GSA and how does that play in? Uh, Government Service Administration mm-hmm. um, basically is kind of like the, the Amazon of um, what the warfighter needs. So if the warfighter wants something mm-hmm. or uh, for contracting, if we want something, uh, we know that this site has the best companies at the most uh, competitive rates on there, mm-hmm. and we just go to that that website. So it, it helps, like it really cuts out our market research is already done for us, and then so we go to the GSA site and um, see if we have companies there that can uh, fill our requirements. So that's something you would identify during that market research phase. You'd say you'd, you'd oh, go yeah. to both Sam's, you go to GSA, mm-hmm. and Sam's you might find say there's four or five vendors out here I can put a quote out for, but then you can go over to GSA and you say there's. Here's the pricing, ready to go. Is that right? Absolutely. And, and, and so a lot of times companies don't have the time to get onto GSA mm-hmm. uh, because it takes about uh, 6 to 12 months mm-hmm. um, to actually get your product and, and, and vet it and everything else, doing the competitive pricings and stuff like that, to actually be listed on, on GSA. And so they might have a, a SAMS identification, and they might be competitive but they probably haven't gotten to that point to where they've already been blessed to be on GSA. And so it, it, we, we use both systems uh, interchangeably um, to, to get the job done. If you are a contracting officer, though, and you see that there's a requirement and that you got three competitive people you've identified through SAMs, but then you got one on GSA, I mean, who are you more likely, what, what are you more likely to go with? I mean, you, a GSA. And is that, why is that? Just because it's easier, because it's vetted um, yeah. and it's approved, and yeah. yeah. So if you're serious about making these these smaller contracts, getting listed on GSA should be a priority. It, it should. It should. Okay, yeah. interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, small business set aside. So what, what is a small business set aside? Uh, that's eight A Alpha, mm-hmm. um, and 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 serious. Uh, what it does, it helps the government support small business, disadvantaged small businesses, mm-hmm. and this could be. Um, uh, military disabled um, owned vi- business, women owned uh, business. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, we it's uh, a party of contracting to support uh, America's small businesses. Yeah, I think I remember we ca- talked about the rule of twos, mm-hmm. which uh, if I remember correctly, that w- during the market research, if you could identify two small disadvantaged businesses and you hadn't reached your set aside quota mm-hmm. for the fiscal year, you had to. Award uh, abso- it to abso- a small absolutely, business. yes, and we and the government does give us those quotas to meet. Mm-hmm. And and still, again, those are you know service disabled veterans, uh, women owned businesses, uh, economically disadvantaged women owned businesses, and then there's there's uh, the majority of those small business administration uh, certifications are actually self authenticating, um, but there are ones that the the SBA actually goes through and authenticates. Those are what they call the eight A programs, things like Alaskan Native. In fact, I think that's one of the one of the, the hardest ones uh, to get to yes. get the Alaskan yeah. Native. Yes, yes uh, it is. All right. Well, let's let's transition a little bit to to uh, contract administration. You know, 
the majority of issues that come up on a construction project mm -hmm. that I see, especially on a civilian project, they're going to be handled at a level lower than me. I mean, if, you know, if I see something, it's because it's probably escalated. Uh, and I think that's the same with government contracts as well, but it's a little bit of a different process. Um, you know, I think in a civilian project where you have uh, the person who's paying, again, is the one who's making or authorized to make those decisions, it's a little different on a, on a government contract. Um, yes. And I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the players there. What's a, what's a core? A uh, contracting officer representative. And essentially that is somebody who's actually on ground with the company mm -hmm. and they're the ears and eyes of the contracting officer because the contracting officer, we're not there. You know, we, we set up the contract, we award the contract, um, and then it comes to the administration side to make sure that the vendor, the contract contracted person, is living up to their uh, end of the agreement, the bargain uh, in the services. And so we have somebody that's a part of their team um, watching and monitoring the, the process. How many, I guess, uh, that, that's an important caveat, uh, thing to note, too. I mean, you know, your typical maybe developer may have a couple, maybe one or two projects in the pipeline, maybe just one bigger project. But as a contracting officer, how many contracts do you have awarded at any one time, potentially? It depends on the size and nature of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so during the fight, we should do about 35 a day. Yeah, so, so I mean, you're not, you're not super, I guess you're really relying on your eyes and ears on the ground then. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and to be clear, the, the core contacting officer representative mm -hmm. is a part of the requiring activity. So they're part of the customer? Yes, yes. So do they have any authority to bind the government? In any way? Absolutely not. Yeah, so, so what you're saying is they're the person who knows the most about what's going on on the contract, but mm -hmm. at the same time, they have no authority whatsoever. Right. They just report back. Gotcha. Um, and they, they do that with the CPARs uh, monthly. Mm -hmm. They send us uh, our reports and um, we do all the tracking. And so essentially, I am, I am just a... Not to interrupt you, but what is CPARs? Can you, can you, I, think, I think it stands for Contractor Performance Assessment Report System. But, but explain to me what CPARs is. So it, essentially, it um, it tracks everything like um, suspensions, debar uh, disbarments, mm -hmm. um, anything that goes on in the um, performance of the actual contract. Um, and I know on a construction project, typically they're coming out quarterly with a CPARS report, um, and that, from my experience, it's usually the core who kind of fills that out and then kind of gives it to the contract. I mean, it has heavy input, but it's coming from the contracting officer. Is that right? It's coming from, yeah, from the representative, yeah. So yes. The representative, they're filling it out. They're giving it to the contracting officer to kind of review, and then usually they give it to the, the vendor at some point. Is it oh, yeah, so the contracting officer comes back to the vendor, and um, we have this closed-door meeting, and, and we talk about their performance. Mm -hmm. And if it's uh, something that is not good, um, we give them a warning. Uh, we, we, we log it in, and if it's a repeat offense, then that's when we, when we start taking action. Yeah. Uh, you know, you see some of these, these ratings, satisfactory. Uh, how bad is an unsatisfactory? Um, that's a systemic problem. And um, you, you, you get a bunch of satisfactories. Satisfactories is usually the norm. Um, of course, the, the vendor, vendor always wants above above the an excellent and so um if, if a person gets an unsatisfactory it, it is flagrant uh, is that going to affect let's say if i get if i get two or three cpars reports with an unsatisfactory is that going to affect my future awards oh absolutely yes really? so yes. you're going to take that into account 
during that market research. It is. It is. That's what we look at, too, is especially if it's an experienced uh, government vendor. Um, we definitely look at the um, their past performance mm-hmm. on the, the actual job, and, um, and there's a rating given, too. And so um, if, it, it matters. It definitely matters for them to, to have a, a good report. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you get that closed-door meeting, and then and then it gets published. Um, all right, let's let's shift a little bit here. Uh, what's what's a bilateral and unilateral change? I mean, in a m- normal construction project, a civilian one, there's certain circumstances, I guess, where an owner could potentially direct someone to do something. But that that's a little more common in a government. I mean, those are very limited circumstances. You know, there's usually disputes and upset. You know, people get upset. Yeah. But how does that work on a on a federal project with unilateral and bilateral changes. So unilateral is pretty much the government doing it one side saying, hey, this is a this is a change. Um, and it's not uh, the contractor doesn't bless off on it. Mm-hmm. Bilateral means both of us together notice a change and we both sign off on the change for the mm-hmm. contract. Unilateral changes are mostly administrative. Um, if some kind of pay uh, entities change on there, mm-hmm. we go ahead and unilaterally, you know, we, we make it official saying that um, instead of using this address for payment, you're going to use this address for payment and it's, it's documented on the contract and yeah. They don't have any say on that, so. I mean, but it does happen. I mean, for example, there was a, uh, an executive order ooh, about was it eight months ago that was supposed to be implemented this past fall that we saw a lot of, you know, the government was basically saying they were going to, for the COVID um, uh, uh, vaccines, vaccinations on some co- construction projects, and the government was talking about doing a unilateral change there, which I think brings us to our next topic. What is a request for equitable adjustment? Um, so it's, if stuff doesn't really work out as, as the schedule dictates, mm-hmm. the the actual vendor, the contracted person, can come back and request um, more money mm-hmm. for the time spent um, solving this problem or dealing with it. And so requests for that adjustment is sent into the uh, contracting officer, mm-hmm. and then we have our determination and findings to see if it's valid, and then um, we'll issue, issue issue them more money. Okay. Ask for more money and issue them more money. What are some of the things that you want to see in your contracting officer? I mean, I got to assume, you know, when somebody's asking for more money, it's because something unanticipated has come up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, if on a normal project, people don't like spending more money for getting what they've already contracted for. So when you're getting a request for equitable adjustment as a contracting officer, what, I mean, what are you looking for, really? What, are you try, what do you need to see? So it needs to be an, a mother nature type of event, something that is not anticipated, because within the contract, we already anticipate so many days will be lost if it's a service or if it's a product being delivered, you know, certain percentage might be damaged. Mm-hmm. Right. And so something that that is uh, a force of nature. And when when the contractor loses time and money and they have to spend more resources, um, to, to come up with actually providing the service that they're being contracted for. So uh, you're saying so things that are, un, so which, which you're looking for really substantiation that it's unanticipated. Absolutely. Yeah, documentation, I mean, what kind of documentation are you looking for? Uh, receipts, definitely, um, um, reports, um, I- anything that's official that that substantiates mm-hmm. why they're asking for the, um, the REA. As a contracting officer, are you really a subject matter expert on the, the product or the service that you're buying? 
So we have to become that, right? Um, we won't be a subject matter expert, but we have to become very fluid, mm -hmm. and we also have to have those resources on our team. Uh, if, if it's an engineering project, I'm not an engineer, but I, I definitely need to have the engineer on my team too. I can reach out and mm -hmm. and, and ask for uh, a look over, yeah, um, what I'm actually seeing here. Mm -hmm. yes. And then that's where the core is going to help too, and, and things like that. So oh, it's, yeah. it's you're kind of kind of an interesting dynamic, I think, there where you know you're really relying on your staff. Yeah, it's but not a one-shot thing. Yeah, it's not a one-person thing. It's a big shop. Yeah. And, but uh, it's your name going on the paperwork. It's yes, your, there's only one, one person that it. can pay the bills. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's why it's, uh, it, it's designed that way, um, to, to actually pin that rose on that one person um, that is responsible for the taxpayers' money. Yeah, is that um, a bachelor reference we just made? Is that, <laughs> is that, is that, is that, I didn't well, see I, that coming. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I agree. That's that's, uh, And, you know, the next step, once you've uh, submitted a request for equitable adjustment, mm -hmm. uh, then it, if, if he gets denied, you know, we often see that's, that's where I'll get involved typically, where it becomes now what's known as a certified claim. Yeah, claim. What, what's a... What does a contracting officer think when he receives a certified claim? Oh man, that's a lot of headaches, uh, <laughs> and they have up up to six years, you know, to 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 submit a claim yeah. after the contract is over with, right? And well, so, except for project closeout, right? Because they'll get a waiver usually. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, but yeah, yeah, up to six years, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. You're saying <laughs> is that really the reaction a contract officer gets when they? And, and you know what? A lot of un, a lot of vendors are unhappy. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, and it's it. You know, it's part of the fight, and you have to just deal with it. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. So, when you get a certified claim, I mean, with a request for equitable adjustment as a contracting officer, you're, you're basically keeping that. That is all in your authority, right? Mm -hmm. But w at what point do you start having to go above and outside your team to to the to the park or the or to your your command to to say get them involved? Is that when it, when it's been elevated? Yeah, uh, to like the GAO. Yeah. Um, and so even as a claim, you, you're not really getting any oversight there. It's still all kind of on the contracting officer. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. So that's the, what he's talking about GAO, that's the Government Accountability Office. Once once you've submitted a certified claim, the government has, I think, they have a certain amount of time to respond. And then uh, you can appeal that to the Armed Services Board of Contracting Appeals, to GAO, or to the, uh, the Court of Federal Claims, I believe. But yeah, yeah well, that's, that's kind of more of a, a discussion for another time, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, well, I, I kind of want to transition now to uh, subcontractor issues. You know, the majority of clients that I see uh, on these projects are uh, not in contract with the government. They're actually contracted with the people who are contracted with the government, the, the prime contractor, right? Which is, a, is an interesting dynamic because, you know, again, in a typical project, you know, you can you can uh, get into a disagreement. It, there's a little bit more clarity. I think we all kind of understand the concept of someone paying for what they're buying. But on a government project, I mean, the government has all these different tools, unilateral changes. It's a far more burdensome contract for that prime. And because of that, it puts the subcontractor in, um, in kind of a unique position because they're not dealing with you as the contracting officer. And yet... Yes, yeah, so they're powerless. Yeah, yeah exactly. really, really are. They're yeah. really vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, and so I kind of wanted to just kind of briefly touch on those because there are some tools available. And I think as a contract, as a subcontractor, you really need to be cognizant of those tools because there are time limits associated with them. Um, so if it's the first one is, you know, 
pay applications. There's a lot of a uh, lot of uh, confusion, I think, sometimes with subcontractors and what's and what's the paperwork that a prime is submitting for their pay applications. Pay applications on a construction project typically are going. I mean, let's, on a services contract, Roderick, how often are, is the prime contractor submitting uh, pay requests to the government? Um, it's, it's on a time performance. It, it depends on the schedule of how they complete the service. Mm-hmm. And so midway through, they will request more money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's contemplated in the contract. That's, it is, yes. It's a pay schedule for that. Mm-hmm. And so they're submitting those routinely on a pay schedule. And uh, I know on, a, on, a, on the FAR list that in a construction project, the government pays fourteen within 14 days of a properly submitted pay invoice. Is that consistent with what you remember? It's usually around seven. They get it, they get it out quick. Yeah, and why is that? What, what's it like on the media on the other side? I mean, is that something the government's tracking, how quickly they're paying those invoices? Oh, yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. We we, um, we make sure that, that the prime gets gets their money mm-hmm. and because um, all we're trying to do is make sure everything gets done in that timely manner that the, the warfighter needs it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so everything goes through DFAS and everything's already set up um, on the redundant systems. And so when we so, put for the pay request, it goes... I mean, so what happens, have you ever experienced a late payment as a contracting officer? Is that something like you all have been, you're past The only it? time we have a late payment is when those codes change, right, um, for the actual accounting yeah. part. And um, so I've, I have experienced to where the, and it, it's at the fault of the vendor because they, you know, the prime, they're, they're getting used to the system mm-hmm. and they haven't entered the, the all the certification numbers and everything correctly and so everything. So, absent that, though, it'd be very unusual for the government to be late. Oh, making, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of subcontractors don't understand. You know, that's obviously a dialogue that the comp, that happens. You know, I'm waiting to get paid. I'm kind of some ambiguity there. But what you're telling me is that if I'm a subcontractor and I'm giving my invoice to the prime and I know that's going in a pay app, they're getting, they're getting paid for my work yeah, fairly are. quickly. They are, yes. Uh, in fact, they... Um, they certify that they're paying their subs. Okay. Once we, once we, we send that check out and everything, they certify that they paid every everybody. Talk to me a little bit more about that. The certification. I mean, um, it, would it be if you found out that uh, that a prime that that certification was false? They just hadn't been paying their subs. Is that something that you would pay attention to? Oh yeah, that's that's definitely a, a write up. Uh, that's a, a bad mark and. Uh, we would want resolution for that. That's that's, that's going that's something that's going to go in that CPARS report. That's going to be something that you're going to note. Uh, yeah. Yes. And so once you get on that naughty, naughty boy report or naughty girl report, it's uh, it's going pretty hard to get off of there. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that's something you want. That's something you want to avoid. So if I'm a subcontractor and I know I'm not getting paid, but I know that they're submitting and they're getting paid the prime, maybe that there's some that that's at some point maybe that's something I want to bring up to the contracting officer, right? Mm-hmm. Now, as a contracting officer, are you going to go down? Are you going to talk to the sub? No. No. So who are you? You go. Who you're going to? We're going right back to the prime. Gotcha. And 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 ask them, or um, how come your your people didn't get paid? Yeah. 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 What's the what's the, what's the deal here? Yeah. Um, and then, okay, so that that's I think that's important to know. You know, I think a lot of times it, it's hard because you know a sub can they'll send that letter, but they don't know what's going on. They don't know how the government views it. So it's good to know that. Yeah. That's something that the, the contracting officer is going to care about. He's going to ask. Um, so uh, Miller Act bonds and prompt payment. I think there's really two tools. If you're a subcontractor and you're not getting paid, there's really two tools that you have. Those are the Miller Act payment bond and, your, and the Prompt Pay Act. 
Um, first, I guess we'll talk about the Miller Act payment bond. But the Miller Act payment bond is a statute because you cannot lien federal land. So every federal project has the, the prime contractor, every construction project, the prime contractor has to get two bonds, a payment bond and a performance bond. And that's every project. And you'd be and that, now statutorily, every subcontractor has a right to that payment bond, the information. Yes. And you'd be surprised how many primes just forget to include it in their initial contract. Yeah, just, just who knows? Um, so you can do a statutory request to the contracting officer for that information. But that's definitely something I think as a sub, you want to make sure you're getting on the front end. Um, the, the bond is what they are. They're a company that, that ensures or guarantees the performance of that prime contractor. And it guarantees that they're going to be paying. Um, and really, ultimately, the, the bond doesn't want to pay any money at all, uh, which means that they're going to hold the, the prime contractor accountable because they're going to look over their shoulder, and if there's an allegation that the prime is not doing what they're supposed to, the bond really is, is, is a betting man. I mean, they're, they're betting to see what, which bet can I make to pay the absolute least amount of money. So if you're making a compelling case and making a notice on that bond, I mean, that's some of your best possible leverage. Yes, it's a good check, checks and balance um, scenario there yeah. with that. Mm -hmm. um, and so they'll they'll hopefully hold that that prime contractor accountable to. And so you have to make now you have to provide notice to the bond within ninety days of the last day you did work as a subcontractor. So if you let that ninety days pass without providing notice to the bond, you now waive your bond claim. Once you've made notice of that bond claim, to, you have a year to actually file suit on it. But if you miss those deadlines, it's going to substantially change the leverage in that discussion or negotiations you have with the prime when you have a subcontractor who's not getting paid. Um, and then finally, there's the Prompt Payment Act. The Prompt Payment Act is kind of interesting. It's, it's, it's a language that gets incorporated into the prime contract, where the prime contractor is stating that they're going to uphold certain payment requirements to their subs. They're going to pay their subs within seven days of receiving payment, and they're doing that certification that Roderick was talking about. Yeah, they're exactly yes. certifying and under oath that they are in fact paying their subs. Um, you, there's no affirmative right under the Prompt Payment Act. You, you, can, you don't have a cause of action. You can't reference it. But knowing that the Prompt Payment Act is in that prime contractor's contract, knowing the representations that they have to be making to the contracting officer is valuable. Mm -hmm. Because again, Roderick, you know, you can back me up on this. But if you find out that that prime contractor is just submitting false pay payment applications, I mean, is that going to be an issue? Yes, sir. <laughs> um, and that's really, that's kind of the, uh, if you, those are the two tools I think you have as a subcontractor. Yeah, they can even get terminated, you know, T for C, term terminate for cause, because mm -hmm. they're not, you know, paying their people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's about um, everything I wanted to cover. Roderick, uh, I really appreciate you uh, talking to us today. Um, and answered some of these questions about federal contracting. Uh, thank you to those listening on this episode of Legally Speaking. Make sure to tune in to upcoming episodes for more insider advice on all your legal needs. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>